We are continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians. We're starting chapter 5 this morning. The uh, scripture will be up here momentarily on the screen. We're going to look at the first 14 verses today. So let me read this as we dive in. Give ear. This is God's word. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes upon those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is God's word. So there was a flyer posted up on a wall uh, on a campus, and it said in huge letters, SEX! And then down below in the fine print, it said, now that I've got your attention, how about joining the campus rowing club? (laughs) I've seen these things. We have developed, you know, there's a whole history behind this. We have a culture of sex, right? It's everywhere. It's everywhere in San Diego. We see it everywhere. My kids see it every Sunday morning when they come to church. Because the posters are up, the, the, the placards are up. Just a few weeks ago, all the sex in the city signs were everywhere. I feel like my kids learn more about sex coming to church on Sunday morning than they do anywhere else in the week. Um, and it's not just movies, but television. It seems like every TV show, if you watch it, it's not just soap operas during the day, but basically every show either is all about people having sex or it's making se- you know, innuendo about sex, or there's a component, it's like a requirement. If you want to get certain people to watch your show, all you have to do is have sex, have pretty guys and pretty girls together and, and seeing you know, what goes on. It seems like in most shows, the actors just sort of swap partners every season or two. I mean, this is what we see, and it's in advertising. I mean, you know, you can walk through Horton Plaza and see it. You can look at all the billboards that advertise anything. I mean, even rowing clubs, right? You can use sex. Now, why is it everywhere? Why is it everywhere? Because it works. It's because we want it, right? I mean, it appeals to us. We buy into it. And frankly, as we do this, marriages suffer. Right? Spouses can't compete with what you can see on TV 
or what you can get three clicks away at any moment in time on the Internet. You just you can't compete outside of marriage. Men, women, even teenagers are being emotionally destroyed because they're imitating what they perceive to be normal practice in relationships. Normal sexual behavior has completely radically changed the way people even date. If I did a lot of research on this this, this week, and if you if you do, there are books and articles written on the culture of hooking up in college campuses, and it's it started in college because you got people there that have all kinds of freedom and there's no real rules, but it's filtered down now into high school and even junior high where dating is really passe. There's no reason to date, and it's kind of funny. There's a little bit of wisdom in this. These kids, high schoolers, are saying, I mean, like freshmen, sophomores, they say, you know, I'm not ready for marriage. You know, that's way off in the future. And so why date? Let's just hook up. Let's have sexual encounters. Let's do friends with benefits. Those are friends that basically have intercourse together um, with no relationship strings attached. I mean, this is the culture that... We live in, this is San Diego. This is sex in the city. And as these people engage in this stuff, they get emotionally destroyed. And no amount of Prozac or Zoloft is able to fix what is wrong. And when kids come for help, the problem is the people that they go to in the schools, they're basically being told, look, sex isn't that big a deal. You just need to move on. Their peers tell them it's not a big deal. And they're, and then, I mean, it's, it's crazy because people then become ill-equipped to know what real relationships look like. By the time you get into the time when you think maybe you're ready for marriage, you've had so many relationships, so many misguided and, and crazy and mixed up, emotionally wrenching and heart-ripping experiences that you don't know how to relate to somebody anymore in a healthy way. I mean, this is... The problem, we don't know what real relationships look like anymore because we're being infected by sex. And the problem is we're, we're welcoming it in, right? We like it. Even if we don't do it, we like to watch it. We like to joke about it. We like to, you know, experience it vicariously. You know, when I was in the business world, I was in sales, and there's all kinds of talk that goes on, and it was always, hey, I'm wed but not dead, Right, as an excuse given to why it's okay to participate in, in certain kinds of behavior. Or, um, you know, I can look at the menu without ordering anything. I mean, these are the ways that we justify our participation in these kinds of things. And so, all right, so I could go on and on and on, and, and people have, and I think it's really helpful to examine this stuff and where it comes from. And, but, you know, the question is, what do we do? Right? What do we do about this? We're all affected by it, either directly because we're participating in it or because we're being pulled in the direction to participate in it, or we've got people who are doing things they shouldn't do and it affects their relationship with us. What do we do about it? Is there anything that we can do about it? I know a lot of you are struggling in this area of sex, and I know that a lot of you know people or loving people who are struggling in this area. Is there any hope? Is there an answer to deal with this, given the fact that we are bombarded with it all the time? I mean, this is one of those areas where I think, well, maybe God's power really isn't strong enough to handle this one, right? I mean, who can stand against this? Who can stand against the onslaught? Well, Scripture does have an answer. It always has answers to the questions that we bring to it. And this passage tackles the issues of sex in San Diego, sex in our city. It analyzes our culture and our city, and then it gives us wisdom so that we can be freed from the enslaving power of, of, of lust and sex. And so we're going to see three points this morning. The outline's there in your bulletin. First, we're going to, it's, it's really, it's lust, love, and light. 
Okay, we're going to look at lust, love, and light. Lust is the corruption of sex, verses 3 to 7. Love saves people from slavery to lust, verses 1 and 2. And then light saves a culture from slavery to lust, verses 8 through 14. And if you'll remember, you know, Dick mentioned the Extreme Makeover Home Edition show last week. In his introduction, he talked about the makeover shows. Extreme Home Makeover was one of our favorite shows until we came down to San Diego. Now we're at Uptown in the evening, so we don't get to watch it anymore. We used to watch as a family this amazing picture of the gospel, right? This old, decrepit, decaying house gets completely remodeled. And, and what, you know, one of the funnest times of the show is the last 10 minutes of the show. Because what do they do? They don't just show you the outside, but they actually bring you in and give you a tour of the inside of the house, right? And they give you a lot of before and after shots. Like, this is what it looked like before, but then here's the new house, right? Well, starting in chapter 4, verse 25, all the way through the end of this chapter is basically Paul taking us on a tour through the new self, right? The gospel makes us over. The old self dies, and God gives us a new self. And what Paul then does is he goes through different areas of life and he says, hey, speech, this is the old. Here's the new. This is who you now are. Anger, here's the old. Here's the new. Stealing, here's the old. Here's the new. And so as we go through this text, we're going to see sort of your insides if you're a believer in Jesus. If you're trusting in Jesus, God has made you over. We've been talking about that all throughout Ephesians. And so now we're getting a tour of sort of the before and after of the room of lust and sexuality. Okay, that's what we're going to be looking at. And so first, lust is the corruption of sex, verses 3 to 7. You know, it's funny, this passage is one of those passages in the Bible you think could have been written yesterday, <laughs> right? It doesn't sound like a 2,000-year-old a document here. Um, in this area of life, life wasn't that much different back in the days of Jesus. So first, let's talk about a definition. Um, I'm promoting that lust really encapsulates the, the, the things that Paul is opposing here. Um, Paul describes this in detail in verses 3 and 5. He defines this lust as sexual immorality in verse 3, impurity and greed. And then also verse 5, no immoral, impure, or greedy person shall inherit the kingdom of God. And so what is sexual immorality? Right? We need to define this so that we know what we're talking about. Well, the Greek word, there's a Greek word behind the term sexual immorality. You know what the word is? It's porneia. Okay? You ever wonder where we get the word porn from? Pornography? It comes from the Greek. <laughs> Not just the Bible comes up with words from, from, uh, from the Greek, but, um, but the, uh, the word pornography comes from this Greek word porneia. And what it is, let me give you a definition. It's sometimes used specifically to refer to the act of intercourse outside of marriage, but it's also used more generally to cover all sexual sins. So let me give you a definition that I think is helpful. Sexual immorality is all getting or seeking sexual satisfaction and sexual arousal outside of a marriage relationship. Okay? All getting or seeking sexual satisfaction or sexual arousal outside of a marriage relationship. That's just one half of it, right? That's the person getting. What about the person giving? Right, think about this. On the giving side, sexual morality would be any effort to satisfy or arouse someone else sexually outside of a marriage relationship. These are both important. Any effort to satisfy or arouse someone else sexually outside of a marriage relationship. I'm going to go on and describe this a little bit more, but I do want to say that when, 
we're talking about the context of a significant dating relationship where two people are trying to figure out whether or not they ought to get married, that there are ways to apply these principles that we want to adjust a little bit, okay? And so I just I want to be real and I want to recognize that there's something special that happens in a dating relationship. When the Bible was written, dating didn't exist. And so we need to be sensitive to where we live, right? That our context does help us apply the principles of Scripture. So we're going to look at the principles today, but I just want to make that qualification as I go on. And this is one of those things that makes me realize that Christianity is not religion. Okay, this is a... (laughs) I don't like this definition. I wish this wasn't the definition of this word because this gets into my life, into my kitchen, into my baggage. Um, religion says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then everybody who hears that says, oh, I'm not committing sex outside of marriage, so I'm free. Right? That's what religion does. But the gospel pushes us to be real, real with ourselves and then real with God. Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Okay, it doesn't mean that there's not a difference between looking at someone lustfully and committing adultery. There's still a big difference there in terms of the degree of sin there, but it's the same sin. It's a quantitative difference, not a qualitative difference. It's the same sin. And so this, this is real. This forces us to realize that God is serious about our hearts. You know, there are times when understanding the difference between religion and the gospel is wonderful because And we're going to get to that. But there are times when having to say, wait a minute, I believe in the gospel, not just in a religion, really does make us say, all right, well, so who are you really inside? What really is going on inside of you? This idea of pornea, of sexual morality, it covers deeds, acts, words, dress, the way you dress, the way you flirt. It covers texting, instant messaging, in a way that seeks or offers sexual arousal or satisfaction with someone else outside of marriage. I mean, it's all covered. And so this covers not just people that do these things, but it covers advertising. It covers the entire pornography industry. It it covers the media. You know, it's possible for companies to do things that are sinful, right, that are wrong, that are violating what God what God wants and what God made people for. And so all pornography and lots of relationships and activities of relationships are adultery, are, are adultery of the heart. Okay. And you need to come to grips with that. You need to understand that that's what this text is saying. Um, God cares about this, unfortunately, a lot more than we do. I mean, unfortunately, not because he cares about this, but unfortunately, because there's a big difference between how much he cares about it and how much we care about it. God takes these things very, very seriously. And Paul goes even further. In verse 4, he says, you shouldn't even be joking about it. right? Obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. He says this twice in verse 3, then also in verse 12. He says it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. What's the big deal? I mean, as long as we're not doing it, why can't we talk about it? Doesn't joking about it kind of just sort of relieve the pressure. You know, it's like a pressure valve that sort of lets off some steam so that you don't have to do it. Well, actually, it's the opposite. Words are the connection between our thoughts and our actions. Okay? We start thinking about something, but we never do it. But we become more familiar with it. We become more acclimated to it. We become more comfortable with it when we begin to talk 
about it. And then joking really does sort of slip in things way before we'd ever talk about them in, in a civilized way. And so that's what Paul is saying here. You shouldn't engage in this kind of stuff because what it does is it creates an environment. It creates an atmosphere of acceptance of that it's okay to do these things or let's laugh about these things. Let's not take them seriously. And Paul is saying that among the church, among the people who know and love God, these things should not be. Now, listen, this doesn't mean that you don't talk about these things if you're struggling. Okay, if you are stuck in these kinds of sins, if you are dealing with these kinds of addictions, these kinds of problems, it doesn't mean that you don't talk to somebody about them. The only way to get help oftentimes is to bring somebody else into your struggle with you by by telling someone else about it, by getting support and encouragement, by helping have somebody else speak into your life to build a structure in your life that keeps you from the things that lead you in and lead you down into those areas of darkness. So this doesn't mean that you never talk about it. That's actually one of the problem ways the church has failed to deal with this. But I think we all know the difference between a conversation about something that someone's struggling with versus making jokes and being obscene about area, you know, things that end up making us not, um, not that concerned about them. And so it's interesting because the third thing that Paul says to describe this, when he says um, immorality, impurity, he says the word greed. And this helps us because it's not just acts, it's not just actions, but it's, it's lust. It's lust. Greed here, it's, it's a sexual greed. And again, it's used twice in verse 3 and verse 5. And really, greed is at the core of the problem with sex here in San Diego. Okay, greed is at the core um, because the culture tells you that sex is for you. Okay, it's all about you. It trains you to think that sex exists to fulfill your desires. And what this does is that you begin to assume that other people exist for your own gratification. Right? When you notice the way people dress and you indulge in your thoughts because of the way people dress, you're treating them as though they exist for you. Does that make sense? And so lust actually trains us in selfishness and corrupts love. Lust is the corruption of love. One author said this, Lust is selfish and destructive. It's a deceptive counterfeit of God's love. It's not concerned about commitment, but only satisfaction. It's not concerned about giving, but only about getting. And lust does corrupt the world. It corrupts the world. It's marring one of the greatest gifts that God has given to humanity. Right? Lust is, or sex is an amazing gift from God. It is a wonderful, enjoyable, pleasurable, creative, amazing experience that God has gifted to his, to, to people, to the world. He lets everybody enjoy it and he sets the parameters. It's a, it's a gift from God. But what lust does is it takes the gift and it smears it. It's like a, a wet painting that you just take your hand across and, and you swipe across. It smears it. It cheapens its beauty. It's, it's like Satan in the garden coming to Adam and Eve and saying, what's the deal here? Why isn't God, I mean, ignore all the things that God has given you, but what's up with this? You know, it's, it's Satan tempting Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness and to use the one thing God said was off limits to exalt themselves and to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. Right? This is what lust does for us. It corrupts us from the inside out. Now, okay, as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, wow, boy, this, 
there's a huge temptation here to sound prudish, right? To sound a little bit too Victorian, to sound out of touch with where normal people are. And honestly, the church, I think, has done a horrible job with that. The church, the church has, has really almost been cruelly perfectionistic about its stance on sex. Um, I mean, it almost sounds like our parents sometimes, you know, um, where, you know, and, and we can, it's easy to say, well, you just don't understand to our parents. It's easy to look at authorities and say, well, you know, you just don't know what I go through. But we can't dismiss scripture. Right. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are above our ways. He really does know what's best. OK, and scripture in, in talking about these things, it's not trying to chase us down and beat us on the head. It's not trying to come after us with a weight of law and put it on our back so that we're carrying around a burden that we can't bear. When the scripture talks about this, it's trying to save us. It's trying to save us, you know, um, and what do I mean by that? Well, Paul says in verse 3, don't even let a hint of these things exist among you. These are improper for God's holy people. Now, how many of you may feel like what he's saying is you should be ashamed of yourself for this? Is that how it sounds? This is improper for God's holy people. How could you possibly do these things? That's not the spirit that Paul is is coming with. What Paul is saying here is that he's saying, look, there should be no hint of these things among you because, remember, we're in chapter 5 of a letter. Okay, and you can't read what we're looking at today without remembering what he said all up to this time. And so remember what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, if you're a believer in Jesus, you've been chosen by God. You've been forgiven by God. You have God's own holy presence living within you. You have God's eternal inheritance, his power within you. You're part of God fixing what's wrong with the world. You are surrounded by a community, by a family that supports and loves you. Your old way of life is dead and gone, and you've been raised. You're a new person now. You are filled with love and goodness. That's why there can't be a hint of sexual immorality among you. That's why this this doesn't comport with who you are. These things don't fit with your new self. You know, think about it from the home makeover perspective, going back to the show, what if they just left a room as old and nasty and disgusting as they found it? I mean, it wouldn't fit, right? That doesn't make any sense. You destroy the whole thing and you build the whole thing up. If you leave one room untouched, then the mold and the decay and the mildew from that room ends up seeping out. The smell from that room affects and it infiltrates in other parts of the house. It's the same way here. Paul is saying, look, the room of lust in sexuality has been demolished and it's been replaced. You're a new person. That's the joy of becoming a Christian is that God changes you. He transforms who you are. You are remade if you believe in Jesus. And we need to know this because Paul continues to go on. It's like it gets deeper and deeper into our soul. He says in verse 5 that this greed leads to idolatry. He says, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such man is an idolater. It's an idolater. And what he's telling us here is, look, when you pursue lust, it's a form of worship. And when you worship anything that's not God, it will control you. It'll enslave you. You know, this isn't just getting pleasure out of an, out of an activity. This is worship. 
It's the worship of sex. It's the worship of pleasure. You know, the Greeks, they just, I mean, I think maybe they were a little bit smarter than we were in this sense. They just erected a god for it. Aphrodite was the goddess of love, of erotic love. And in one sense, they were saying, well, they were just being overt about what was going on in their hearts. They were saying, look, we're worshiping Aphrodite right now by doing these things. You know, and again, I think that might be a little bit more healthy. I mean, how about for you? When you're indulging in lust in any form, any kind of sexual morality, would it be helpful for you to be reminded that, you know what, you're engaging in worship? You're spending your time. You're spending your energy. You're spending your money, possibly. You're reorienting your life and your schedule so that you can bow down and worship Aphrodite. This is serious stuff. I mean, we're talking about issues of the heart. We talk about idolatry. We're talking about worship. And what you worship, you become. It's enslaving. You become like the thing that you worship. And this is a powerful idol. I mean, I don't even have to tell you that, but it's claimed so many people, men, women, pastors, all kinds of leaders. And it always starts small. James 1 says, each one of us is carried away and enticed by lust. And the image of carried away and enticed, it's the bait on a hook. You know, the fish that live under in the safety under the rocks. You know, but you throw that, 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 that hook in the water with that worm on it, right? And it just lures the fish out. It lures us out. It lures us into places where we shouldn't be. I mean, it's powerful. It's powerful. And Paul's real clear about the consequences here. He basically gives two consequences, verses 5 and 6. He says, For the this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of such things, God's wrath comes upon those who are disobedient. So there's really two things. One, you get no inheritance. You miss out on the glory that God has, on real joy, real peace, real happiness, real fulfillment in life. And it's not that if you do these things, you'll get the inheritance, but having the inheritance enables you not to do these things. So there's no inheritance. But then the second thing about wrath, here's what's interesting, is that Paul speaks about this in the present tense. He's not talking about future wrath. You know, most churches say, well, if you do this, you're going to go to hell. That's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul is saying here is that because of these things, God's wrath comes present. It's coming now. It's here. It's coming upon the people who are sinning in this way. One author said this to explain this. God's wrath is built into creation itself. There are certain ways of behaving that are so out of line with the way God made the world, and humans in particular, that they bring their own nemesis. Sexual misbehavior certainly comes into this category. Another author said this, every time two people make love physically, their bodies are saying, we belong to each other totally, completely, and forever. That's what sex means. We belong to each other totally, completely, and forever. And if that isn't true, and if this isn't known by both to be true, if it's just an experiment, a nice idea at the time, a trial arrangement, their bodies are telling a lie, and sooner or later that lie will come out. Sometimes God's anger towards sin is expressed by him saying, if you really are going to do this, I'm going to stop preventing you. 
there are times when God says, okay, if you really want this, I'm going to stop preventing you. And then Paul warns us, because he knows how radical this was in his day. I mean, no less radical today. He warns us, verse 7, or verse 6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because there's people that say, oh my goodness, I can't believe, maybe some of you are hitting, sitting here saying, this is the most ridiculous, detached, up in the air, ethereal, idealistic thing I've ever heard anybody say, I can't believe that you actually expect that people are going to swallow this. Paul says, look, there are people out there with empty words. You know what I heard this week? Um, I was just driving in the car and I heard this on the radio. Unprotected sex is the new engagement ring. If you really want to tell somebody that you're committed to them, what you do is you both go down and get your tests, make sure you don't have any STDs, and then you start having unprotected sex. That shows that you're really committed to somebody. I've got four pages of quotes from a psychiatrist at UCLA who was just floored by the advice that was at the, on the UCLA website that was given to people who were struggling, who were looking for advice and were asking questions on their website. Um, one girl who's absolutely ravaged and depressed and on medication now because she's been destroyed by these casual encounter relationships and just feels like everywhere she goes, all her friends, they're telling her, look, get over it. It's just sex. Move on. And she's saying, no, 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 there's something wrong here. And so she goes and says, well, gosh, when, when is the right time for your first time? And the answer that she got, this is on their website, on UCLA website. I'm a Bruin, so I'm not taking pot shots. I'm, I guess I'm owning the sins of my school. Um, the answer was, uh, oh, it, the question was, how long after dating, you know, should we have our first encounter? And the question, and the answer said, three days, three weeks, three years. It doesn't matter. Do whatever. And this psychiatrist is now receiving the things that get spit out the bottom of this culture. I mean, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. And this doesn't even mention the things, the the reality that this whole kingdom of lust, I mean, that's really what it is. And there are people that are rulers of it. And there are people who are in control of major avenues of it in in our city, in, in our country, in the world, this doesn't even take into account the fact that there are people who are brought into the industry and are forced. They're sex trafficking slaves, right? The Harbor of Hope, what Susan Muncie and many others out of Harbor are doing is to try to bring healing and redemption to people who are locked into this, to try to get people out of this whole sex trafficking industry. And the reality is, here's the reality. Every time you engage in an act of lust, in some way you are building that kingdom and it strengthens everything that's done. Every time you engage in even the smallest act, you build up a kingdom that is enslaving people, both the people who work in it and the people who are coming to feed on it. So you need to be careful. I mean, that's the reality. You're going to hear a lot of empty words. You hear a lot of people give you reasons why this is ridiculous, why this is outdated, why this is. But I tell you what, this is the only you got to have the truth. Sometimes somebody's got to speak the truth into your life. Someone's got to warn you. Someone's got to tell you that 
I, I mean, we're going to get more to it. So, um, so the question is, what do we do about this, right? What can we do? What do we do? Well, the conservatives say, well, look, let's just not talk about it, right? We don't need to talk about it. Just say no. We've already said what's right and wrong. What, yeah, we don't. We shouldn't talk about it. And so, really, this almost gives the impression that sex is dirty, right? Um, or that, I mean, the problem is when you say let's not talk about it, then whoever needs help, they're just not going to come and talk to you. Okay, that's why it's important to be able to talk about it. Well, the liberals on the other side want to say, look, don't say that anything's unhealthy. Look, sex is actually just self-expression. And if you want to do something, go ahead and do it. Nobody should tell you that something is off limits or out of bounds. But the gospel says both are wrong. The gospel gives us a third way, and the answer that the gospel gives comes in our next two points. So that was, that was a long point, lots to talk about. We have two more points, and the answer is really this new life. It's a new walk. Um, what we need are love and light. And so secondly, love saves people from slavery to lust. Okay, Love saves people from slavery to lust. This is verses 1 and 2. And Paul defines love, right? What is love? Paul says, be imitators of God. How do you imitate God? Paul says love, right? As dearly loved children, live a life of love. How? Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Here's the core. What is love? You give yourself for others. You give yourself for others. You put their needs ahead of yours. You do what is best for them. When you put this attitude on and you walk in this attitude, when you live a life where your heart's desire, your mind's eye is seeking to do what is best for others, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes everything. Because even the people that you would look to, I mean, how, how, could, you, how could you love a prostitute? Right? Is loving a prostitute giving her money? And helping her do her job, right? Is loving um, a, a, a model who's posing in a horribly inappropriate way in an ad, is, is loving that person, even though you've never met them, is loving that person looking and oogling and, and indulging in that ad? What's best for those people? What is best for others? When you think about that, you realize love is sort of the antibody and the vaccine for lust. Okay, it not only identifies it, um, but it's the it's the removal of it, and it's it's what replaces it. The more that you love in this way, the less you'll lust, and the less you'll greedily use and manipulate other people for your own gratification. I mean, it's as simple as that. This is what Paul said in chapter four: you put off the old self and you put on the new self. When you do this, your desires begin to diminish over time. You know, and so when you're at that moment of temptation to lust, what you do is you have to say, what is best for this other person? What is best for me? What does God want? And you don't let go of those questions until you're free of the situation. Okay, you grab a hold of yourself and you say, wait a second, what does, love, what does it mean to give myself up? In this situation. Now, where does this love come from? Right? How do we get this love? Well, it comes from Jesus. Right? Verse 1 tells us that. He has loved you. And he's given everything for you. His whole life was a gift for you. 
Verse 2, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. If you're struggling with lust, if you're dealing with lust, if you're acting out of lust, if you're not struggling at all, but you're just happily following lust, Paul has good news for you. There is forgiveness. There is hope. You can have all of your sins cleansed because one of the acts of love that Christ did was to give himself up as an offering and a sacrifice to God. In his death, Jesus took the punishment, all the anger, all the wrath of God that's poured out on the sons of disobedience. Jesus took it on himself so that you can be forgiven. If you're struggling with this, Jesus will bring you healing. He'll bring you forgiveness. You need and, and what's amazing about the love of Jesus is that when he loves you, he doesn't just love you in a way that covers you over, although he does that. Right? He covers you with his love so that you're loved by God and accepted by God, even though you don't deserve it, because none of us do. But what's amazing is that not only does he cover you with himself like a robe, but it's he reaches in and then he puts his love in you. When Jesus loves on you, his love gets in you. This is where this new life comes from. This is where the strength comes from to love in this way. When you believe, one of the rooms in the tour of the new self is the heart. And Paul is saying here that you get a heart makeover. Christ, because of Christ, now it's our nature to love just as it's God's nature to love. Because his nature is now our nature. And you need to believe that. If you believe in Jesus, God has poured his love abundantly into your heart. You have his, his love. And the more you know that love, the more you'll be filled with it, the more you'll walk in it. And so we need to devote ourselves to understand the love of God, the love of Jesus. Think about what did Jesus do for me? He left heaven and came to a bad place to sacrifice for me. He lived among people who didn't understand him as a sacrifice for me. He went out of his way to serve people as a sacrifice for me. He humbled himself and acted like a slave sometimes as an expression of love and sacrifice for me, for you. When you think about that love and then say to yourself, wait a minute, that love is in me now. That will connect what Jesus did with who, what you do in your life to love others. And so again, when you're tempted, when you're at that moment of temptation, remember Jesus' love for you and thank him until your desire to lust goes away. Keep thanking him out loud if you have to, right? Out loud if you need to, but don't stop thanking him and thinking about his love until your desire to use someone else goes away. And so love really is the replacement to personal change. It's the thing that helps us deal with sexual temptation. But what do we do about the culture? Right? How do we fight and combat this evil, wicked culture that surrounds us? Right? Do we build giant walls around the church to keep ourselves safe? No. Individuals need love. The culture needs light. That's number three, light. Light saves a culture from slavery to lust. Look at verse 8. Paul says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Do you see the pattern here? What does Paul not say? Paul doesn't say, if you live as children of light, then you can be the light. Right? That's religion. Religion says if you do these things, then you can get the blessing of being light. The gospel says, look, 
salvation's a gift. God's blessings are unmerited. We don't earn them. God gives them to us for free because of Jesus. And so here we see the pattern. This is the gospel. You are the light when you believe in Jesus. You become the light. What happens is that God changes us first and then asks us to live according to the change. He's not asking us to do what he hasn't already done in us. And then verse verse 9, goodness, righteousness, and truth flow out of you naturally. And so you should be known for these things. These things should characterize your life. This is how you shine your light on others. First and foremost, this is how your light shines. It's not through the words that you say. It's through your life. Okay? It's through your life. Your life demonstrates that you are different. Right? Your life looks different. Um, Paul says that we need to expose the deeds of darkness in verse 11. Expose the deeds of darkness. And we do that first and foremost through changed lives. Okay? First, our lives change. That's sort of step one. Step two is loving communication. Okay? Loving communication. Change life demonstrates the light. And then loving communication builds a relationship so that you can be heard. Okay? Relationship and love actually give power to your light. Okay? And this is especially true for enemies. Think about the enemies in the culture. Enemies that you have in your personal life. They need love and light for you to be able to bring your light to them. Right? Without love and light, light, I'm sorry, without love, light blinds and burns. Okay? Do you think it's immoral to have a lampshade? A lampshade, right? Is it immoral? In fact, you know what? Even without a lampshade, is it immoral to, remember the old light bulbs that didn't have that coating on them? that made the whole light glow, but you kind of look at it, you could see the filament lit up. And if you looked at it for more than three seconds, when you looked away, you could still see it in purple, you know, the filament. Was it evil for somebody to um, put a coating inside that light so that it would glow more holistically and not just the little filament? Was it evil for somebody to invent a lampshade to put over a light so that it wouldn't blind us? It's ridiculous, right? Of course not. Of course not. Love and relationship are the necessary lampshades that we need to have when we share the light. Okay? There are a lot of us, the church is sometimes very bad at this, where we come out with the light and we want to tell everybody what they're doing wrong and we want to expose the deeds of darkness and we're like a halogen lamp right in your face. I mean, it's no wonder people run from it. And then we say, oh, see, they hate the light, right? Because they're evil and rotten people. They hate the light. That's why they're running away from us, because they don't like the fact that we just... No. <laughs> no, sometimes we're the problem in the, in the equation. Now, there are times when people, no matter what you say or how lovingly you communicate it, they won't want to hear it, okay? And there are still times when we need to be bold to be able to say in love and in a relationship that, hey, I'm, I'm trying to offer you truth, the thinking that you have, the deeds that you're doing are not going to lead you to happiness. They're not going to lead you to fulfillment. They're not going to lead you to anything but being enslaved and in the wrong kind of relationships for the rest of your life. And I know you don't want to hear this, but as, as a loving, out of love, I'm telling you this. We need love and light. 
and I think we're, we're sometimes too quick to speak. I think in this text that the fact that it says it's shameful even to mention what's diso- what the disobedient do in secret, I think maybe is a strong indication that the light really is almost exclusively our own changed lives, first and foremost. There are parts of the Bible that say, look, don't even bother to rebuke the wicked because you're just going to invite the wrong kind of response. I think here what we're seeing is that it's, it's the light that draws people first. It's the light. True love enables light to enlighten others. And I think there's one, there's one translation that brings this out well. Um, in, uh, in verse 11, it says, It's even possible, after all it happened to you, for light to turn the thing it shines on into the light also. That's kind of what the hope is, right? As you live changed lives and you love the people around you, as you are building relationships with the people around you and then given opportunities to share with them the reasons behind your life, that's how the culture changes. That's how we spread the light. It's us speaking with love and in relationships. And it's one person at a time, right? I mean, that's where real change takes place. It's one person at a time. And you've experienced this. Those of you who are following Jesus have come into contact with the light from somebody that you know, right? And they've, you've seen something in them and, they, and that's drawn you to them. And here's what's amazing is that you see the light in others. You're drawn to it a little bit. And then you come to hear the gospel and you begin to hear God's call and you respond. And what's amazing is that Jesus, the light, Christ, who is the light, shines on you and then gives you his light. That's what happened to you. Um, most commentators think that this quote, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, was a part of a hymn that was pronounced on people when they got baptized in the early church. This is what they would say to people like, right before they got baptized. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And then they go through this baptism, and it's this death and resurrection image, right? The pouring out of the Spirit. It's the giving of light, and now this person shines. Now this person shines with the light of Christ. That's what it is. And I think the other thing that's amazing here is that this light versus dark, it doesn't cause retreat from the world. It causes engagement with the world. Right? We've got to go. It sends us out. It's the light of your conduct that brings light into the darkness. So if there's any of you here that, uh, that are hearing about this love and this light and you don't have it yet, I want to just make a personal appeal to you. If any of you are struggling, you know, lust obviously manifests itself in the area of sexual sin, but there's all kinds of ways that our over-desire control us, right? Money, power, in lots of other ways, we are controlled by our desires. And if you're looking for redemption, if you're looking for freedom, if you're tired of living enslaved to stuff that you wish didn't control you, I want to invite you to come to Jesus. Believe. If you believe in Jesus and you come to him, he has died for your sins and he has been raised from the dead so that he can give you new power, so he can bring you forgiveness and then fill you with himself so that you can be liberated and freed. And coming is just literally saying, Lord, I believe in Jesus. Forgive me for my sins and I will do my best to follow you. That's all it takes. And I just want to, at the end, I mean, I guess I want to just say, This is not something that you can handle on your own if you're struggling with this. You need to get help. You need to have other brothers, other sisters in the church that are praying for you, that are being next to you, that you're being honest and vulnerable with. 
You can't do this on your own. And so if you're struggling with this now, you need to get help. Get help today. Don't leave without getting help. Come talk to me if you need help um, or if you need something beyond. Don't leave here without help. Don't leave here enslaved in the darkness. Come to the light. Let's pray. Father, we are we're grateful for your love and for your light. We're grateful, God, that, uh, that you do speak to us and tell us things that, uh, that are hard to hear. Um, but draw us, God, by your love and by the hope of a life of fulfillment and joy and real happiness, a life that's connected to you. Draw us by those things further and further into your light. God, as you expose the darkness in our own hearts, please flood us with your love as well. Keep us close to you and to your light so that we can stay close. And God, I do pray if there's anybody here who don't believe or who are so far gone and lost in sexual sin, that you would help them to get help, that you would inspire them to reach out and to get the help that they need so that they can be freed and liberated from this. And God, do give us all a vision, a vision for a renewed San Diego where sex is not as prevalent where lust is not engendered, but it's replaced by God, by, by sex that honors you, by the wondrous joy of fulfilling sex that happens within marriage. God, let help us to do what we can through love and through light to bring down the strongholds of sex and lust that exist in our city and give us wisdom to know how we might be agents of change for that. Not in a way that seeks to condemn and call fire down upon other folks, but that seeks to bring the loving light that you've brought into our hearts, into the hearts of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.